Welcome to a very special new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with legendary jazz composer, bandleader, organist, pianist, and new NEA jazz master, Carla Blay. She went from being a girl in Oakland, California, to becoming a bona fide jazz legend. Her latest offering is 2016's Andano El Tiempo CD. She started out on the keys at the age of three and had a concert by the time she was four. So it's safe to say that jazz was in her DNA. She would move on to New York City and become a cigarette girl at Birdland. And that led her to seeing many in the scene at the time and growing up quite a bit. And from there, she met her first husband, Paul Blay, and went to L.A. in the mid-50s. Watching Ornette Coleman on a regular basis was huge, and Carla, over the course of our interview, had incredible insights into this time of her life and all kinds of different phases that she's gone through. So dig all the great stories and surprises and get to know Carla. It's an honor to speak with you. Thanks for taking the time out to talk with me. You're welcome. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start off here. By the first thing I want to say is you have to have one of the best websites that I've ever seen. I love it. Well, thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and start off. I just want, in your own words, I know you, you're pretty good about putting up what you're doing lately, but in your own words, talk to me about what is going on in your music world these days. I am uh, juggling a couple of things. There's a trio tour that starts in uh, one week in Europe for three weeks. I'm still preparing the last bit of music for that tour. And I'm uh, editing the La Lasson Francaise, which is an oratorio for big band and boys choir that we recorded last month in Germany. And I'm editing it now, getting it ready to, for, for it to be mixed. And there's a, a couple of Charlie Hayden gigs coming up, and I'm trying to find that music and, and see what we're going to play. We're playing the the Jazz Festival in Chicago in September, and then in November we're going to Europe for a couple of gigs. So, and that's about what I'm doing right now. So, you know, for someone that's traveled so much for so long in your life, does travel still hold an allure? Does it really make you grow as a musician still? I don't know if it makes me grow as a musician, but I just love it because I get to go places that most people save money for years in order to visit. And I, I go to the most exotic places and I get paid for it. It's like a, it's a win-win. Absolutely, without a doubt. So I want to talk about your most recent work, 2016's um, Andano El Tiempo. Talk to me about your more recent projects and even this album. How do you feel about this album? I have not heard it since it came out, but... I remember feeling a little insecure about it because it was um, another ECM album and there was no time to get things exactly perfect. We pretty much played the pieces as though it were a, a concert and that's what you're going to hear on the album. It's like a concert. There's no perfection involved. And uh, man, that's the way Manfred likes to do it. Manfred Eicher, the producer of ECM, the owner of ECM, says that it's more important the general feeling of the the music than the little nits that you want to pick out. You know, like, oh, that's a wrong note, or I don't like the way my horn sounds there. 
And he says that the people that are listening, that's not as important to them as just the overall feeling they get when they listen to it. So that's what I'm, I've been doing now. And this album is definitely one of those. It's like we just sort of played it live, and there it is. I mean, isn't that the essence of improv in a nutshell? Uh, yes, but I'm a composer, and so it's just, it sort of grinds on, on me. I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. So let me go back to the beginnings of your life here. How does a girl from Oakland, California grow up to become one of the biggest names in jazz music? I cannot understand that myself. I think it must be some gigantic mistake. <laughs> I'm pretending to be someone I'm not. I'm really just a little girl from Oakland. So let me ask you this. You start out on the keys at age three. Would you consider yourself, I know there's kind of an aversion to child prodigy, but how would you define that? How how was your grasp for, of music from an early age? Did it just feel right? Yeah, it felt as natural as walking, which I learned to do around the same time. My father was a piano teacher, so that came with the territory. I got piano lessons starting, you know, three years old and played my first concert at four, which was a sort of silly thing. I played Three Blind Mice on the Black Keys. And, you know, it was a novelty thing at the the local church. I didn't know at the time that it was, well, that's only halfway true. Half of me thought I was the world's greatest piano player, and half of me didn't care at all about it. So I ended up somewhere in between. So talk to me about your childhood in Oakland. How did you get this love of jazz, and how did you get so immersed in growing up with music? I know you said that you have music in your family, but what was it about your entire childhood that led you to this? It was all church music, mainly. My father was also the organist at the local church and the choir master. So music and religion were very, very tightly experienced by a small child, I think. So when I first heard jazz, it it was like a break from the religious part, but the music sounded the same. There were the same harmonies, there were the same uh, feelings as you listen to it of ecstasy, in a way, or importance, you know, like when you believe in heaven and Jesus and angels and things, you get quite excited by it, almost as excited as if you were listening to a Charlie Parker play, but very similar, I think. It's almost like a religion, and in a sense, it's exactly the opposite from a religion. It's like with the, from angels to devils. Hmm, interesting. What album, when you were growing up, did you listen to that just kind of part of the curtains or albums? I didn't listen to any albums at all. I didn't have a phonograph until I was 30 years old. I listened to the radio, Uh and I listened live in jazz clubs as soon as I was able to. So there there were no albums in those days, not a single one in my life anyway. But I did listen to the radio, and when I first moved to New York, it was Symphony Sid that I listened to every night for a couple of hours, and that was sort of my education, my you know, this is what this is what the greatest players are sounding like, and uh, that sort of formed my standards. You know, was something as good as that? I still ask myself if music is as good as it used to be. 
so is it a foregone conclusion that since you started playing live at four that you were going to get into music, or did you have other dreams that you were going to go after? Yeah, in school they had a a test to see what your vocation should be. And I I had to write down three things that I might become. And one was a gold dust digger or a, a gold panner. What do you call that? Back in San Francisco, that was a big deal. Um, oh, the 49ers, the gold diggers. Yeah, well, I wanted to get gold in a stream by sifting it through a pan. That was my main ambition. And besides that, I think I was just making up things, though. I wanted to be a deep-sea diver. That was my second choice. And my third was an opera singer. And, of course, I couldn't be any of those things. They're just totally out of my range. So I ended up, I write music, and there's a certain amount of fantasy involved in that. So it can be as exciting as discovering a a big vein of gold in a stream in, in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. Metaphorically speaking, that's what you've done in your life as a composer <laughs> well, and musician. You just, have called you've called through the stream and found the gold. Oh wow. Thank you. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that's 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 what's screaming in my head metaphorically. So um, nothing has changed at all. <laughs> no, you're a gold digger. I mean you, yeah. you, you or a you gold found, digger, right. <laughs> you you found you found the jazz riches for sure. I guess that leads into my next question, which is the reason why it's painting that Bob Ross metaphor in my head. You go to New York City, you're a cigarette girl at a Birdland. That had to be an incredibly huge moment for you. Yeah, that that's, was my college education. I just went to Birdland. I had a job there as a cigarette girl. And also I was worked in the cloakroom and I sold stuffed animals. Um, I got to hear all the music and that just went on for a long time. And I went and worked in other jazz clubs for my advanced degree. <laughs> So what kind of who'd you see? I mean, you say obviously everybody that had to be a huge hotbed, but who who'd you see that really kind of sticks out in your mind right now? I really didn't know what was what was great and what wasn't great. I accepted everything. I accepted it as though I were being taught this is what it is, and then I, all I had to do is listen and remember and accept. And that's what I did pretty much. I liked Horace Silver a lot. He worked at jazz clubs where I was working behind the scenes. I grew to like him more and more. And also the Count Basie band became my favorite band. And they would work at Birdland or Basin Street like regularly, either a week at a time or constantly on on a Monday night or a Sunday matinee or something like that. They had regular jobs then. It wasn't a steady stream of of individuals from all over the world playing all kinds of music. It was Count Basie. He was there just playing jazz. I loved that, and Thelonious Monk was my favorite piano player. I also liked the the, uh, MJQ, Modern Jazz Quartet. Yeah. I really liked them a lot. They seemed like really, you know, had a lot of tone because they were wearing suits. I had never seen guys wearing suits on a stage before, and I thought, boy, someday I'm going to wear a suit. And I do now when I play. I just wear a suit. So in those early years of New York, how did you grow musically? What were you doing? What what were some of the big highlights for you? There was a, 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 a loft scene. Anyone could come, and it didn't cost any money at all. And all the guys in town would 
gather and play for no money. They would just play among themselves in order to, you know, get their chops together or learn some new tunes or or practice some idea they had. And this happened like very many nights a week at lofts that were near where I lived, and I would just walk down the block and go up two floors and see wonderful people playing and working out and Listen, I just listened the whole time. I didn't ever play, but I listened a lot. So I'm going to kind of transition here to L.A. You meet Paul, go to L.A. in the mid-50s, and you see Ornette Coleman. You know, as a practitioner of free jazz, that had to be huge to, to see someone like him on a regular basis. What were what was it like? To, this is kind of a two-part. The Ornette side of seeing things and moving from New York to L.A., what was all that like for you? Well, I didn't know... Uh, anything about free jazz i I always was interested in people who were playing advanced ideas or harmonies that weren't typical, but I had no idea what free was and didn't know until I heard Ornette in Los Angeles. So when I went to Los Angeles, it wasn't a musical pilgrimage. But when I first came to New York, it was a musical pilgrimage. I just wanted to hitchhike across the country and go directly to Cafe Bohemia and hear Miles Davis. But it wasn't that way going going to uh, Los Angeles. And I don't know why Ornette came to Los Angeles instead of going straight to New York, but he did. And there I was, and there he was. And I just uh, thought that was the best music I had heard up until that point and uh, tried to uh, go to the club every night where he was playing and listen to that and study that. I think what I'm getting at is that I'm a listener yeah. and have been all my life, and I I would suggest that to anyone who wanted to learn how to play. Just go listen. So I want to pose kind of a scenario to you. I had spoken to Chuck Israels, and he talked about Bill Evans, and at one point, he kind of stopped and said, you know, we didn't know what we were in the middle of at the time. Now that everybody's looking at retrospect, it's kind of the golden age. There's so much razzle that goes into this era. But, but no one knew anything at the time. When I think about all these compositions that were George Russell and Tony Williams and all these guys were doing for you and everything that you've seen, did you get the sense at that time that you were just you were just in the middle of a jazz vortex? Did you know it was special or was it just what you were doing at the time? I had no idea it was special, and that's something I always usually get around to saying, that I'm I'm shocked. I mean, we didn't think anything we did was important. Uh, that's maybe why we felt so um, relaxed about doing whatever we wanted to do, because it was nobody's business but our own, and there was no critic telling us it wasn't good, and just, you know, just do it. Do it if you feel like doing it. It turned out that was that I was there in the city in New York City during the most important days since Charlie Parker was there with you know playing with Sonny Rollins and, and Thelonious Monk. That was like the late fifties, I think, or no, it was the early fifties. Those were important days in New York, but I think also the time you're talking about, which was probably the late sixties. I think that was very important too, but I had no idea it was. You know, we were all like worshiping uh, what had happened in the uh, early fifties, so we uh, didn't. We just thought we were people that 
weren't going to do that. We would do something else, something not so important and rather boring. You know, along with the music and the composing, with uh, Michael Mantler, you find the new music distribution service for independent recordings. How did this come about and how do you feel about it? It was very important at the time because that was what stopped everybody. We had all figured out how to put out our own records. You know, you have to get some money, somebody to give you a certain amount of money, but then you would go to a studio and record it and you would then put it out on a record and take the record to the factory and have the record pressed and come home with boxes and boxes of records. And then what do you do? So this was personal experience. There was nothing to do but to start a, a distribution service, something that would sell this, this stuff that we had done. And there were a bunch of us all over the, well, Europe and the States, mostly Europe, that were doing the same thing, putting out their own records and the new music distribution service accepted them and sold them and distributed them to stores and and even, you know, tried to push them on people. It had a salesman and everything. They would call the stores and say, you got to take this latest recording from Evan Parker. He's from London, and boy, is he, he's, he's going to scare you to death. There's something like that, you know. So we did that, and we did it for a long time until we just totally went broke and had to stop. It didn't pay doing something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, this leads me to another question. In today's music world, it's a little bit easier to release your material on your own and do things more independently. When you look at the landscape of music today, do you think it's better than it was when you started out for musicians to get not only more of their rights to their music, but more money and, and, and more pleasure, so to speak. I think so, definitely. Much easier. Strangely, I've gone the other direction. I put out all my own records all of my life until about five years ago, and then all of a sudden I'm ECM is putting out my, my albums, and I'm not doing the self... The, I'm not, I don't have to do the artwork. I don't have to take the records to the factory. I don't have to write stories about the musicians on the albums. I don't have to do anything but play and write. Everyone else is doing what I used to have to do, which is every, do, it, do it all yourself, you know. Take them to the yeah. store yourself. Call up the critics and ask them to review the record and stuff like that. It's really rough. And if you don't have to do it, it's a blessing. And now I don't have to do it anymore, finally. Throughout your, your life, you've been a composer, you've done solo, you've done, you know, set work, big band work. How do all of these different uh, outfits of jazz, these different ways of approaching the music, lead to you as an or, a, a whole music organism? Well, it's just it's what we would call format, and it's like not having anything to do with the material specifically. It's just what format uh, brings the music to the listener. And it, that could be done for any amount of reasons, aside from, oh, I just love, you know, four baritones and a harmonica player. That's my format. It, that's not really relevant. Uh, it's the music itself. I can take a big band piece and reduce it till it's playable by my trio. And I can also take a trio piece and expand it until it's a big band arrangement. But the music stays the same. 
over the years, you've played with so many people, so many people that have been considered, you know, luminaries and heroes in the world of jazz and been taught by many of them. When you sit back right now, after all these years of being a musician and a composer, what advice really kind of comes to the forefront of your mind that you've gotten from, from other musicians that really is stuck that you remember? I don't remember anything like with uh, quotation marks advice. Nope, I, I didn't get any advice. But that the first part of what you were saying made me think of something else. I didn't know they were heroes and luminaries. These were just guys I knew who I uh, decided to play with, that I enjoyed their company and I enjoyed the way they sounded. And that goes with the earlier question. Nobody knew he or she was famous or ever would be. And I'm going to go into, obviously, you've gotten a lot of awards over your career. You know, in 72, you got the Guggenheim Fellowship. There's been many awards. And I'm not going to ask you what your favorite award is, but I want to ask you, what award did you get that kind of blindsided you? You didn't expect it, and it hit you in a very special way. Of course, it was the last one, the Jazz Masters Award. It was very unlikely that anything like that would ever happen to me. I was in shock. I mean, pleasant shock. So that that would be the the winner of the unexpected award. So I'm going to kind of piggyback off an earlier question, and we were talking about luminaries and heroes. Who are your personal jazz heroes? Well, I'm working with two of them, Steve Swallow and Andy Shepard. I also really thought that Gary Valente was the greatest trombone player in the world, if not the greatest musician in the world, half the time I thought that. He's not playing any longer, but all those years when I had him in the big band, I was very proud to have him. So let me ask you this. Let me kind of whittle a little bit down. You've seen a lot of live shows, but if you could go back in time and witness a show live in a time machine, so to speak, who would you want to go see and where would you go? I would just go back to see Count Basie at Birdland. That was enough of a thrill. I don't I don't think there was anything I couldn't see because I was I was willing to, like sneak into jazz clubs down the back stairs. I was willing to take jobs, at, menial jobs inside the clubs themselves in order to hear whoever I want. So I am i can't imagine anyone except Charlie Parker himself, who I did hear once, but I was standing in front of the club he was playing at, and uh, I just heard him, but I was standing with a huge crowd of people. This was about 1954 or something, and everyone wanted to get into the club, but it was totally packed. So by now, this guy was famous, and he knew it in his own lifetime. That was a beautiful thing. So I wish I could have heard him. That, that's about the, the biggest thing I can think of that I didn't hear. So let me ask you this. It's a general question. You've devoted your life to jazz. So tell me this. Why do you love jazz? Does anyone have an answer to that, I wonder? It, Why do you it, love your wife? Why do you love your children? It's just... You don't. You just do. It's something that you do. You don't know why you do it. And in fact, a lot of times it makes no sense whatsoever what you love. It could be a, you know, a really dangerous thing. It could be a really, could it could end badly. And even loving jazz could end badly. 
if your parents were very strict uh, Protestants. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I, I don't know. It appeals to me musically. It's not it's not an emotional thing as much as uh, it appeals to my physical being. Jazz is a physical, lively art. In other words, it's sort of hard to sit still and it's sort of hard to not breathe heavy. You could listen to, you know, like uh, a Bach piano fugue, and maybe that's a bad example because that you, that could have you breathing heavy and moving around too. But yeah, I mean, still, it's a physical art form. It's like it also has to do with other people. You can't just paint a picture in your attic and then give it to your art dealer and, and sell it for a million dollars. You have to really be right in the middle of the people place. <laughs> you yeah. have to w- work with guys and you have to be seen by all kinds of people in the audience. And and you have to travel in the summer. Like we're really terrified of this next tour because the airports are so rigid right now because of terrorists. There's yeah. going to be a lot of delays and we just might for the first time in our lives miss a gig. Wow. You know, like the, all of a sudden the, the airport's got bombs coming in the windows and we miss a gig. We don't care if we die, but we don't want to miss a gig. Yeah. Well, I'm going to switch tracks here a little bit and ask you this. And, I, and I'm, I'm certain this isn't going to be easy, but I want you to kind of think, what is one of the nicest things a fan has ever said to you about your music and what you do? I'm sorry is the best thing. And that's happened to me many times. Somebody comes up to me that I knew a long time ago who said, that's not music, what you're doing, or that's really horrible, or it has no form that you can't write a melody there's no use for it it's just ridiculous and almost everybody later in life came back and said i'm really sorry i said that i was really stupid i i see i understand what you were doing and i i'm sorry that i was so close and i hope i didn't discourage you and we would laugh about it you know and be okay it never stopped me really (laughs) that's wonderful that's a great answer So everyone has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, your business associates, those that you play for. But when you wake up in the morning, who do you think you are? I'm I'm looking back at this this morning. Let's see. Steve uh, woke me up. He said, lean back against the pillow. I'm bringing you some juice, grapefruit juice. And I said, okay. And then I thought to myself, Today, I've got a list of things to do. I have to finish that certain piece. I have to pack the clothes I'm taking to Europe. I have to get the album ready to be mixed that we did in Germany last month. I have to make sure there's a list of what the people that are going to take care of the house and garden are supposed to do. So it was totally matter-of-fact. It really wasn't waking up in the morning and having a brilliant idea for a symphony. It wasn't at all. It was just the usual list everyone has waking up in the morning. So let me ask you this. I'm going to up the ante on that question there a little bit. When the world peels back the layers of jazz history and they come across the name Carla Blay, how would you like your jazz legacy? I know you're far from being done, but when when it's all in the books, and, it, and a lot of it's in the books right now. How do you want the world of, of jazz to remember you? Wow. My first, oh, I don't know. That's not an important thing for me is to know how I want 
to be remembered, I would like to leave my affairs in enough of an order that my daughter can get the copyright royalties. That's the only thing that I would think about. What would the world think of me? So I suppose in order for her to be able to sell a lot of albums, because she's a musician too and has to support herself working in a restaurant, and it would be really cool if she could just write. And that would be something I could give her by leaving her the, you know, the copyright royalty thing. But I suppose I want the jazz world to remember me as someone who makes albums that they want to buy. Okay, there I did it. I like that. Okay. I like that whole answer. Yeah. Okay, yeah. matter of fact. That's great. Carla, this was fascinating. Thank you for opening up your treasure trove of, of stories and your, your world to me. I really appreciate it. Well, I really thought you did a good job and you asked me interesting things. So thanks for that, too. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, Oakland, California, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Carla for all of her incredible contributions to jazz over the decades. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Jazz.